Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6 will be the, our main scripture passage for this morning, but I'd like to read verses 2 through, uh, excuse me, 6 and 7. I'd like to read through to verse um, verse 7, beginning in verse 2. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. If you do not have a Bible, raise your hand and we will pass the Bible around to you. So let's turn our hearts to... Um, Hearing from God and his word in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 through 7. God's word says this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me for the side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the reading of God's Word. The main part of our text this morning that we want to look at is actually in verses 6 and 7, where Paul gives a commandment to the Philippians to not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Last week, we saw his command in verse Four, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm not sure which of the two is the most difficult to do, right? Any show of hands. Which one would be more difficult, to rejoice in the Lord always or to not be anxious? How many votes for either one? How many vote for none <laughs> as being easy? Yes. Not to be anxious. And not only to not be anxious, what does it say? Not be anxious about anything. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, no, don't be anxious about most things. There's some things in life you could be anxious about, but don't be anxious about most things. You know, he doesn't say that. He says, do not be anxious about anything. So both of these commands, rejoice in the Lord always, which we saw last week, and do not be anxious about anything, both seem impossible. And I would say, yeah, they are impossible in a human sense. They are impossible for us to do. But God, Paul, through the Spirit of God, writing God's Word, giving these instructions to the church, is saying, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And do not be anxious about anything. With God, it is possible. With God, it is possible. And this... These two commandments, to rejoice and to not be anxious, I think are both related in some way. Anxiety and joy are completely incompatible. How many would agree that anxiety and joy just kind of don't seem to happen 
uh, at the same time and in the same way. They're incompatible like oil and water. They just don't mix. And anxiety is the enemy to joy. So as Paul is giving these instructions to rejoice always. And then he says, oh, by the way, the counter to that is do not be anxious about anything. This is not unique to Paul either. Jesus has said the very same things in the Sermon on the Mount. I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 6, where we read Matthew's record of Jesus' words on the Sermon, of the, on the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, beginning in verse uh, 25, he says uh, these words. Jesus gives these same instructions that Paul does concerning being anxious or anxiety or worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more important, more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, same thing, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus says, uh, mentions anxiety no less than five times. He says basically the same thing that Paul says three times there. Verse 25, verse 31, verse 34. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about life. Do not be anxious about what you eat or what you drink. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Don't worry about tomorrow. So Paul here is not giving any kind of instruction that's unusual in any sense. These are some of the very words of Jesus himself. So here's the question. What do you do about anxiety? What's the remedy for anxiety? Commands us here, do not be anxious. Just in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety is forbidden for the Christian life, which would seem very dis distressing Unless we remember that God is giving us some instructions here on how to deal with anxiety. And I believe that Paul spells out three things that we can remember when we are experiencing anxiety. And just this last week, by the way, I think this was probably one of my most anxious weeks ever in preparation for this passage. <laughs> and um, if you're not sure there's a, a, a evil forces or Satan... I, let me tell you stories. I believe uh, that he exists and he works against uh, the people of God, which you, I'm sure, all can testify to as well. 
So this, I've been able to really try and test myself and put this passage into practice this week. And so I want to share with you some of the things that this passage has has taught me. And so there's three things, three remedies to anxiety, and they all begin with a P. I'm going old school, three-point sermon. They all alliterate, so this is, this is great. Um, the first one is, what do we do? What is the remedy to anxiety? The first one is prayer, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. And then notice the word but. The but here signifies, okay, I'm going to now give you the contrastive to anxiety here. The contrast to anxiety or the thing that you should do in response to anxiety is prayer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He uses four nouns, four terms, four different terms for prayer. Notice the first one there. Prayer, that's kind of the general term. The second one, supplication. So this is your... um, you're pleading to God. You're, you're presenting, uh, you're asking him things. And then another word that's connected with prayer is thanksgiving. So these are prayers of thanksgiving to God. God, I thank you. We thank you for your goodness to us and your kindness to us. Um, you present those as well too. And then the last one is requests, which is connected to the main verb here. Make them known. So make your prayer known. Make your supplications known. Make your thanksgiving known. Let your requests be made known to God. Paul is giving a full-orbed picture here of prayer. Any kind of prayer. He's not saying that you need to do four different types of prayers at four different times or anything right uh, like that. He's saying, uh, saying any time, any kind of prayer that you can make, you make to God. When you're feeling anxious, the remedy, the first step in remedy is to pray. To pray. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, present your requests. Let your requests be made known to God. And as we said, anxiety and joy are incompatible. I believe that sometimes anxiety and prayer are incompatible. So when you're feeling anxious, the, the the remedy, the solution to this is to turn to God in prayer. And I like D.A. Carson's quote here. Either worrying drives out prayer or prayer drives out worrying. They both can't occupy the same space at the same time. So when you're feeling anxious and you're feeling those, your shoulders go up and your your heart is kind of, your chest is getting constricted and um, you feel your blood pressure going up, because of your anxieties or your cares or your worries or your strains, those are all signals to us that should send a little waving flag that says, okay, now's now's a good time to pray. Now's a good time to turn to the Lord in prayer. So that's the first one. What is the remedy to anxiety? The first one is prayer, to pray. When you're anxious, pray. The second thing we need to remember about anxiety is to remember what happens when we pray. And what happens when we pray, again, told you, we're going to alliterate these, is peace. When you pray, the result is peace, and to be specific, the peace of God. Notice what it says in verse 7. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart, hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I think Paul is doing something very interesting here with the Philippians in giving this assurance and this word of promise to them when they're experiencing anxiety, then they turn to prayer. And then he's saying, now here, I want to give you the assurance of what happens when you pray. The peace of God comes. A little bit of background here. Um, on the city of Philippi, we began the series a long time ago, 25 weeks ago or something like that. And so it might be helpful to review exactly who it is Paul is talking about here. So just take a, a couple minutes here. Philippi, you see where Philippi is situated. It's in modern-day Greece area. You see Rome over here. And there's modern-day Turkey here. And Jerusalem and everything down there. So Philippi was founded by Paul in his missionary journeys. His second missionary journey. Where he traveled from uh, over here to Antioch and then made his way over here to Troas and then sailed over to Philippi. Little little background on the city of Philippi. Okay? And, so, and Philippi was situated along this major Roman highway that went east to west. Okay? That connected kind of eastern part of the Roman uh, Empire versus the, uh, the western part. Um, there's a map of the city of Philippi. We'll begin the story with Julius Caesar, the first uh, dictator in the Roman Republic. Now, Rome originally was uh, a republic. It had a Senate. Senate. It had representatives from all over the uh, Roman world at that time. And uh, until one day, Julius Caesar decided he was going to be dictator. And so he, with the help of some others, became dictator over the Roman Republic. But a group of people kind of conspired against Julius Caesar. I, I, I get into history, so I'm going really nerdy right now. So um, conspired against Julius Caesar, and they assassinated him on the Roman steps on March 15th, 44 B.C., the Ides of March, last Sunday, right? Um, anybody greet you? Happy Ides of, Ides of March last week. Uh, okay. Uh, only the nerdy ones would. Um, so Julius Caesar was assassinated, and two of the main figures who were part of this assassination, this successful assassination attempt, were guys named Brutus and, Brutus and Cassius. Say Brutus and Cassius. Right. And so they were part of this conspiracy to commit this assassination of Julius Caesar. But there were some people who were very loyal to Julius Caesar, and among them were Octavian and Mark Anthony. And uh, to fill the void left by uh, Caesar's death, Octavian and Anthony and a third guy, um, Lepidus, uh, kind of formed the, uh, they took the space. They were known as the triumvirate, okay? So we basically have a classic battle of east versus west. Brutus and Cassius take off from Rome. They go east and they take up all of their armies and all of the things that they were uh, overseeing. Uh, Octavian, Mark, Anthony, and Lepidus uh, kind of formed, gathered together their side. And so um, a couple of years after his assassination, Octavian and Anthony set out going east to go and defeat Brutus and Cassius. Just, is, are you getting chills? This is a great story, right? This is, um, it's going somewhere. Okay? Octavian, Mark, Anthony, Brutus, Cassius. 
So they end up going, they, these, uh, these guys take their military and their armies and uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops. They go around Rome all the way over to go and meet up with the, the liberators, Brutus and Cassius, and guess where they meet? Philippi. They meet just west of the city of Philippi. Octavian and Anthony line up their forces. Brutus and Cassius line up their forces on the hill just west of the city of Philippi. And over the course of two weeks, two battles, uh, Octavian and Anthony end up winning. Actually, Brutus is winning the first day over Octavian. And Cassius is losing to Mark Anthony. And he thinks that Brutus is losing. And so he ends up committing suicide. So Mark Anthony wins and leaving Brutus all by himself. So Brutus tries to make a defensive position. Um, but some of his mercenaries are getting frustrated with just waiting around. He wants, he goes, well, I'm forced. Now I have to attack. So Brutus is forced to attack Octavian and Mark Anthony, and he uh, is unsuccessful. He ends up committing suicide as well, too. And Mark Anthony and Octavian are victorious. East versus West, the Roman Civil War, they're victorious in the city of Philippi. So they leave uh, a huge military force in Philippi, and they take some of the rest of their army and they go uh, back home. Typically, when you would have a very expansive kind of uh, land mass for like an empire or something like that, you would want to leave soldiers there to kind of calm the peace, right? The Pax Romana, to keep peace from east and west. And so they leave a military force there and actually ends up being kind of retirement settlement. For a lot, of, uh, a lot of Roman centurion soldiers. And you see that in the book of Acts, right? Who's the one of the Roman jailers? You know, as an old Roman uh, soldier. And so um, the aftermath of what happens here. Nine years later, a conflict breaks out between Octavian and Mark Anthony. And then they end up meeting at the Battle of Actium. Octavian defeats Mark Anthony. And Octavian then now has sole control over the Roman Republic. And he does a couple of interesting things afterward. A few years after that, and many of you know this, maybe, Octavian decides to, a couple of years after that, to kind of consolidate his power, and he changes his title and his name. His title gets changed to Caesar, and his name he changes from Octavian to Augustus. Caesar Augustus, who's mentioned in the New Testament. Acts chapter, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 2. In the days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so Joseph and Mary, who'd been living in Nazareth, find, have to go and go down to Bethlehem. He is the emperor, the first emperor over the Roman Empire. It's no longer a republic now, it's an empire. And he's the first emperor. He's the emperor when Jesus is born. So that's the, that's the aftermath. This is why I, get, I like history. Now you like history too now, right? A little bit? Okay. Why is that important? Let's go back to Philippi. Uh, the city, and let me go back a verse here too. Uh, Luke in Acts 16 describes when Paul and his missionary companions go to Philippi. He says... Um, and there, from there to the city of Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, Philippi was not the capital of the district. 
That was Thessalonica, just miles down the road. It wasn't the capital of the region. That was Amphipolis. Uh, But this becomes a leading city because it's a Roman colony. Because Roman soldiers have set up a garrison, a military garrison in Philippi. Which is very interesting. So that if you were a citizen of the city of Philippi, it was as if you were a city of the citizen of Rome itself. So, what does this have to do with Philippi? The city of Philippi was the site of this decisive battle in the Second Roman Civil War. It became a military outpost filled with military people, a military garrison. And Paul says these words, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That verb there, guard, is used elsewhere for a military protection of the walls of a city. One example, I'll just give you one example if you want to look it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. The soldiers were guarding the city of Corinth as Paul was trying to escape. They were looking for a way to capture him. So I think this is fascinating because Paul is using language that the Philippians would understand and imagery that they would understand. And notice what is doing the action of the verb. Who's doing the guarding? The peace of God. This is not just an inward uh, human peace of soul which comes from God. This is not a kind of a divine peace. This is actually possessive. This is God's peace. The peace that God himself has. This is not a natural or humanly kind of peace. This is, uh, you know, like that we would get if we were sitting, uh, you know, out in the sun on a warm day, you know, out at the beach. Although that would be nice. Uh, And it's very peaceful. It's not that kind of peace. This is peace, rest, well-being, security, freedom from care that God himself has and that only God himself can give. Part of the way we know that this is not just some kind of humanly peace is look at what it says. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it transcends the mind. It transcends our ability to understand. It's that kind of peace. Peace. It's unattainable by human comprehension. Apart. Apart from God graciously giving this. So what is this peace guarding? It's guarding your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Which is kind of a way of saying all of you. Down to your very essence of who you are. The very sources, your heart and your mind are the sources of where anxiety works to attack you. And so look at what he's saying. When you're anxious... Pray, And when you pray, the peace that God himself has will form a military garrison around you, around your heart and around your mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard you, your very essence of who you are. What happens when you pray in the face of anxiety? When you pray, the peace of God will form a garrison around you, a fortified defensive position against anxiety. 
Or as I wrote this week, when you pray, the peace of God acts like an army to encircle and protect your heart and mind from agitation, from fear, and from worry. God's own peace is a peacekeeping force over you from the attack of anxiety. What an amazing promise this is. So are are you anxious? Have you been anxious? Were you anxious sometime this week? I bet you probably were. Actually, I began uh, to look up statistics on this to kind of begin the sermon with an illustration, and it was so depressing I quit looking them up on anxiety. So what are you to do? Are you anxious? Pray. What does prayer do? The peace of God will encircle and surround you like a military garrison. And that brings us to the third one. Why pray? Why pray? Well, here's the last piece. Presence. Presence. The last thing we need to remember in prayer is what it says actually in the second half of verse 5. The Lord is near. Now, these are what Paul is doing here at the end of this letter is he's just kind of shooting off a whole bunch of little commands and statements and, and those kind of things. And um, some, some English versions, I like what the ESV does here. It, it's a little different than other English versions, and it probably is of no significance, but I think it, it kind of makes sense. Notice at the end of verse 5, because remember, in the, uh, the original writings of the New Testament, there were no chapters or verse numbers. It was just, you know, these were just written letters like you would write something, and you don't write number every paragraph or every verse or every sentence or whatever. So those are, those are added hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years later. So it's hard to tell kind of where a sentence ends and where one begins. It doesn't have punctuation. We don't know whether it's a period or whether it's a comma. I like what they do at the end of verse 5. Look at this. Semicolon. The Lord is at hand. And notice, do not be anxious. It doesn't begin a new sentence. It's not a capital D for do. It's lowercase d. And I think that's really cool because I think what it's doing is... I'm not sure, I can't say, it's not, it's not decisive either way, but I think conceptually it makes sense. The promise of God's nearness is one of the greatest motivations for, pr- for prayer. Rejoice in the Lord always, let your, you know, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, you know, doesn't quite seem like, does that go with what goes before? Or is that connected with what follows? The Lord is at hand, so don't be anxious. The Lord is at hand. So present your requests to God. I believe that this assurance of the nearness, the closeness, the presence of God among his people is the key motivation in prayer. And so let me just point a couple of scripture verses in particular from the Old Testament that I think fleshes this out. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 145, verse 19. Um. Uh, no, what, I'm sorry. One of my favorite verses uh, is Psalm 34, verse 18. I like I like a lot of verses. But Psalm uh, 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Yeah, right? You've heard me talk about that one uh, many times. Look at what it says in its context. Verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears 
and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord hears because he is near. Or as it says in Psalm 145, this is uh, Psalm 145 verse 19. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear them. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord is near. He hears their cry. The Lord hears because he is near. And the last one, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4, verses 5 through 7. And it gets to kind of the climax of it here in verse 7. But I'll read um, for you. You don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5. These are the words of Moses uh, speaking to the entire congregation of Israel before they go to cross over into the promised land. And he says, see, I, this is Moses, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God had commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding People, And Moses adds in verse 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? The Lord hears because he is near. And that nearness is confirmed for us in Christ Jesus. Matter of fact, Paul says in verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. The nearness of Christ Jesus we looked at uh, in chapter 2, where we have Christ as the perfect example for our humility. Notice what it says. Have this mind among yourselves. Chapter 2, verse 5. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The incarnation, the coming of Christ to us, to be among us, to be near us, to walking with us, to tabernacling with us is evidence of the nearness of God. And even though Christ is not here, those who are in Christ we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. That will come more in our spirit series on the Holy Spirit. But we have God's presence in us. We have God, Jesus Christ interceding for us. He is near. He is near. So when you're anxious, what do we do? What's the remedy to anxiety? What do you do when you're anxious? Pray. What does prayer do? What assurance do we have? The peace God himself has will encircle us like a military guarding our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. And why? Because of the presence. The Lord is near. This is a remedy to anxiety. To apply this for us today, I would like for us to, to kind of walk through a prayer to an example of how to pray when we are experiencing 
anxiety. So um, I would like for you to think in the last couple of days, weeks, uh, months, what are some of the things that have been causing some anxiety for you? You don't have to say them out loud or anything, but just if you could kind of quietly to yourself name some of those things. If you have uh, many of them, just pick a couple of them. If you don't have anything to be anxious about, um, then uh, I have a list here of things that you that you could be anxious about. Um, but just get one or two of those in your mind, and then um, let's just do a practice, an exercise in prayer, in praying for when we feel anxiety come. So let's bow together and let's pray. Father God, we are grateful to you because of your word. We are thankful for these verses written by Paul to this church, but that are also written to us. We're grateful for the command that you give us, not only to rejoice always, but to not be anxious about anything. And God, I freely admit that that's difficult at best, but more likely impossible to do unless we have your help. So, God, I turn to you with prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving. I turn to you, God, with our requests. God, we make known to you now these things that are causing anxiety in us. Just take a moment to express those to God. Father God, having acknowledged these worries and their cares and having named them and recognizing and admitting that they are things that cause anxiety to well up in our hearts and our minds. God, we now claim this promise that you give us in your word, that your peace will surround our hearts and our minds, will guard against these very things that are causing anxiety in us. So God, now we claim the promise that you give us in verse 7. Now just take a moment and in your own words, ask God to provide what he promises, to provide his peace. Father God, we now ask that you drive home that truth of verse 7 in your word. 
Help us to, when we feel anxious and when we pray in you, to picture a strong military army completely surrounding us, an army of your peace. Recognizing that you are providing that so as to fend off the anxiety that we, that we feel. God, help us to remember that truth, drill that truth home into our hearts. And God, we, rem- we ask that you, that you also remind us of your nearness and your presence. And that you are near so that you can hear. Now just take a moment and just express several things that you're just grateful for. God, again, thank you for the truth of your word written and thank you for the truth of the word Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who is interceding for us even now. We thank you that your Son, Jesus, who was crucified for us, is listening and hearing everything that we have brought. We're grateful. We're grateful to you, God, for that. And we now present to you this prayer, God, and all of these requests, knowing that you hear and answer because you are near and because we are praying them in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us. And all of your people say, Amen and Amen. When you're anxious, pray. When you pray, the peace of God surrounds you. And remember that the Lord is near. Let's stand for closing benediction. Different benediction today. Based off of this verse. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit remain with you always.